Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirstie McGuire, Executive Director of PE Win. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network also known as P.E. Win, We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. P.E. Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of P.E. Win, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation, and serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, and the Chief Executive Officer of the Williams Legacy Foundation. And I have been waiting for this guest today to join us. I am so excited. Adele Oliva, who is one of my dearest friends, and we just share so much in common. We've known each other for a very long time, and so I'm so excited for this conversation. Well, Kelly, any chance I have with you, I will take. So thank you for having me. As I said, I've we've known each other a long time. We have so many things in common. Kelly, I remember as I was reflecting on this, I was remembering the two of us celebrating our 40th birthdays together in New York. Exactly. Over that lunch. Was yes, that last year exactly. or the year before? That was one, two years yeah, ago? Yeah, it was just last year, very, very recently. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I, you know what? I, that year for my 40th birthday, I bought myself a really cool little sports car. And as some some of our listeners know, Suzanne, you know, I always talk about this. I, I'm I'm not a motorhead, but I actually like cars. And so I've frequently on my birthdays, I've bought myself a cool car. But we can talk. We, we'll, we'll, talk we'll get to that. We'll talk about that. But I always like to start at the beginning. And so I want to start with you, Adele, and ask you to tell a little tell us a little bit about your early life. How and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia which is a more working class area of Philadelphia. My father came through Ellis Island and was originally born in Italy, came over as a child. And he was the oldest son. And his father was sick as he was growing up and eventually had to drop out of high school to support his family. Not a story that is unlike, unfortunately, many others that have had to make sacrifices for their family. And so my father just had this tremendous, tremendous work ethic. He eventually became a Philadelphia firefighter. Like a lot of firefighters, had a second job. His was driving trucks, cement trucks, snow plows for extra money. 
And then my mom was born here, but her parents were from the same region of Italy, Abruzzo. And um, extremely bright. Like when I say extremely bright, Alan Patrickoff type of bright. She skipped multiple grades. She was she graduated high school at 16. And her parents wouldn't let her go to college because they felt she was too young. So she never had that opportunity. But always very financially sophisticated and really incredible. I, I was reflecting on it. I remember asking my mom um, growing up how much my dad made and whether or not we were middle class. And my mom said he makes $14,000 a year and that's lower middle class but we save money and we spend money so that we live like we're middle class. And I just remember being so proud of the fact that we lived a middle class life, which was a lot of pride in that. And then I have an older brother who was always really an exceptional engineer type of kid and older sister who was always going to be a doctor. And I was the kid, uh, I was five years younger than my sister, seven younger than my brother, and I was the kid that played with money in the basement. So just very fortunate to have a loving, caring family, very similar to yours, Kelly, in terms of the closeness that we had growing up. Yes, you know, as you and I have talked so many times, we have so many similarities. My my mother's family is Italian, and they're from the Abruzzo region, just like, yes. like your family. And it's interesting, when I'm in Italy and I tell people that I'm Abruzzese, they always say, oh, the, the Abruzzese, they're very strong. They're very strong people. <laughs> and so I wonder, you know, I always wonder kind of what is it about them is, you know, Abruzzo is a interesting region because it's so diverse. You know, there are beaches, there are mountains. It's a little bit like California in that way that you can drive a few hours and you'll be in a completely different climate. But, and then much like you, you know, your dad was a firefighter. My dad was a cop. He, he's, you know, both my parents are very intelligent, my dad in particular, but, you know, and he didn't really go to college. He used his GI Bill to, um, to take a criminal justice classes and pursue that career. And then he ended up working at IBM. And so like you, we were lower middle class. You know, my parents paid, I think, $12,000 for their first house and they lived in it mm -hmm. until three years ago. But we never noticed. And I, I think a, a right. lot of it came from the fact that we socialized mostly with our family. We didn't really, my parents didn't really have like friends. They didn't go to cocktail parties. And our fr our family, when you're surrounded that way, you just, there always feels like there's abundance, even if there isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very similar upbringing and family everywhere all the time and the priority. Yeah. So what was your very first job? Yeah, well, we were strongly encouraged to make money as early as possible. And I would say the first time I started making money, I was in elementary school. And my brother, as I said, was a very creative engineer and as a little kid, and he would make these acrylic paperweights with a coin in them, and I would bring them to school, and I would sell them to my friends, and he would give me a very small commission of five to ten cents for selling these little paperweights, and then had, like, just in middle school babysitting and high school, also worked in fast food like you, also had a brown polyester uniform, <laughs> working for a fast food restaurant that sold Kentucky Fried Chicken and mm -hmm. hamburgers. And then just a lot of my jobs through college had a kind of a finance element, but more on the clerical side, because that's what I could get. It's funny, this weekend, my sister went back to my hometown and our cousin is two years older than, than I am. 
And she went to her high school reunion with her, class of 1980. And I guess they must invite, I think they invite multiple classes now to, to come together. In any event, my sister was texting me pictures and one picture. She goes, oh, and here I ran into your first boss. And it was the guy who owned the Dairy Queen franchise. He's, oh he's married to one. <laughs> I was like, what is he doing there? It was so funny. But, Such a small um, community too, right? It is. It's Well, yeah. it is, uh, to me, it's amazing how many people stay there. You know, in, in my family, my whole family has been here on my dad's side since the 1600s, and they all still live in the same part of the Hudson Valley. I'm the only one who ever moved away. So, yeah, it is amazing how how people stay together. And some people stay in the same region, and then other people just move all over the place. So you mentioned that in your, you know, in your early jobs, once you went off to college, you started to do things more related to finance. What what point did you become aware of private equity? Did you think about it as a, or, and you, you know, I guess private equity, venture capital, when did you think about that as a, a potential career path? Yeah, really, when I was in business school up at Cornell, I love the entrepreneurship program and second semester, first year became the head TA of it. And we had different folks coming through the entrepreneurship program. And that's really where I got a lot more knowledge and background about venture capital and private equity. And then my first job out of business school was at Baxter Healthcare in marketing and business development. But I had done commercial banking before business school. I was a financial analyst and a lending officer. And so when I started learning more and more about the opportunity to do private equity, it seemed like the perfect blend because I loved the financial analytics of banking. And I absolutely am so passionate about healthcare. It seemed to bring together the best of both worlds. And through the Kauffman Fellows Program, thankfully, I was able to get a position at it. And I just this year for the first time has have been asked to be a mentor to a Kaufman fellow. And I know you oh, do that. I know wonderful. Kate Mitchell does yeah. that. Maybe talk talk a little bit about that and and how how you've been involved and how it made an impact for you. Yeah, well, going back to when I got into investing in the late nineties, there was a generational gap in many ways. And the Kaufman foundation, their objective was to fill that generational gap and to identify the next leaders in private equity and venture capital. And if you look at the early classes, a lot of us have gone on to start our own firms and have been fairly successful with being entrepreneurial investors. And with Kaufman, I am forever thankful for the opportunity to get into this part of the world in business and to do something that I'm just brings so much energy and excitement to every single day to have the opportunity to make a positive impact financially on our investors, right? Giving them a great, hopefully risk return, but also having a great impact on society, being a healthcare investor and having that opportunity to do things that really change society for the better. And I have sponsored folks within firms to be Kauffman Fellows. I have also, like you, been a mentor to individuals who are not working with me but needed a mentor outside of it. 
And it's just an incredible organization and very much an organization of support. And the individuals that they bring into it, they spend a lot of time making sure those individuals are going to give back and contribute. Well, so that that experience, I think, explains a lot and maybe leads a little bit to my next question, which is, you know, lots of people go into private equity. Not everybody becomes a leader. Certainly not everybody starts their own firm. And you mentioned that your your first foray, foray was at Apex. Maybe talk a little bit about your experience there and how that or other experiences led you to actually move into more senior roles in the industry. Yeah, well, I was so fortunate to be at Apex when Ellen Patrickoff was running the firm. And Janet Eflin was there as my mentor, Pat Clarity. I mean, just like some of the most successful investors ever in our the industry. Legends. Some the of legends. our legends, right? And I had the chance to learn from them. Um, Alan took me on meetings with him, watching him fundraise, watching him, how he dealt with challenging situations. And it was just, this really is an apprentice industry and having great leaders to learn from and emulate and pick the best of each of them, which is what we talk to our team about here at 1315 Capital, is you should be taking the best of all of us and becoming even better. And you look at Alan Patrickoff's record of the individuals that he trained, and so many of us have now gone off to start our own firms. And one of the things that hit me when I got to Apex and you've brought this up in other podcasts, Kelly, is the industry was very homogenous when we started, right, 25 so years ago. And Alan always had a very diverse industry. His first partner was Pat Clarity. She is just an amazing, amazing investor. He always had diversity among the ranks of the firm. And I always joke with Alan, it didn't matter what your background was, what you look like, what you sounded like. He just wanted people who were money makers, and that was the most important thing to him. And it just created an expectation around performance versus politics. And that's what Alan really taught, uh, taught me as a leader. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, it's it is fundamentally it comes down to performance, and I think that that it. I, you've heard me say it before. I, I really think <clears throat> that when people don't cast a broad net, whether it's looking for investment opportunities or selecting managers, when you narrow yourself down to kind of one category of you know, okay, I want white guys who worked at Goldman who went to HBS, you're just missing performance. It's it's just, you know, laws of statistics will tell you that. So it's great that you you started your career with somebody who had those values. I mean, I was lucky, at least with respect to my private equity career, that I started at Prudential. I started doing that Prudential, which was a very diverse firm. And this was in the early 90s. You know, I've said before, my boss was a woman. Her boss was a black man. You know, it, it just, I, I was really struck when I got to that company, how different it was. But that that kind of made, leaves an impression on you and you realize, you know, companies don't have to be homogeneous in order to succeed. I completely agree. And I always say there are only so many A pluses in this world. And if you are narrowing it to one gender or one race, you're missing out. 
And then the other benefit is just networks and viewpoints, the lens at which people look at opportunities and how they can share their perspective. We just so encourage everyone. We were in a meeting yesterday and one of the younger colleagues was in the meeting and I'm like, don't hold back. I'm always depending upon you to give your opinion. And that's what we really try to foster is trying to get those diverse views. We have a very diverse team. We really want to encourage them to share their perspectives. Yeah, I mean, we, that example you just gave is is interesting to me. I was reading this article this morning about someone who's starting a fund that's actually, it's a, it's a public equity fund, and it's meant to be an activist fund to go after companies and, and get them to shut down their ESG efforts, And which I find very interesting. He's backed by Peter Thiel, who we, we know doesn't necessarily believe in, in that. But I've, I've felt that when it comes to diversity and the discussions that we all have around diversity in our industry, it's a mistake to have that discussion under the S, you know, under the social. It's not a social issue. It's a governance issue. And, and that's one where, you know, activist investors talk about governance all the time. They want, you know, they don't, they want turnover among board members. They want to see succession planning. And that's really about who has the power and who's making decisions and making sure that you have the best inputs into those decisions. And that that example you just gave is a good one because you, in your in your example, you're encouraging a more junior person on your team to participate in the governance of your. And so I, you know, I I think that it's it's important for all of us to to really kind of model what we mean by diversity in the type of example you just gave. It's performance-based as well, right? Because if we're able to access different networks, whether it's for deal flow or for our diligence, that's pretty powerful. So not only is it the diversity of thought at the investment committee and around the table in making decisions, but the diversity is really powerful as we're pulling on our networks. And so much of this is human capital, right? What we ultimately are is we're leveraging human capital and being able to tap with the tentacles of a very diverse team, the different networks for deals, the different networks for views on whatever deal we're working on when we're diligencing that. All of that plays such an important role. Yeah, I completely agree. So were there points in your career, I know the answer to this is yes, but where you were particularly aware that you were a woman or where you were made to be aware that you were a woman? Yeah, quite often. And I would say I'm always aware of it as much as um, you try to just, you know, after being in an industry for 25 years, just being the only woman in a room with 16 men a lot of times. I, I listened to the podcast you did with Carol, and it was very interesting listening. I love these, by the way. I love moments that made her, and every time they come out, I can't wait to listen to the next <laughs> podcast. And Carol You're one of our most about... devout listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But Carol, as she was talking and talking about being a woman, for me, I, I, as I said, I bring it every single day. And unfortunately, I am feel with a chip on my shoulder that I'm proving every single day why I'm at the table. It's probably not functional, but it's just the way it is. And as a result, I just, I think, 
carry a very high standard in terms of what I feel is needed to perform. And it, it, it's just the way it is with me, and I really respect people. And I feel like this next generation is really getting beyond it. As I listen to our sons talk and their friends and just some of the younger folks, it is much more gender, race, sexual orientation. Everything is so much more blind, which is just wonderful from my perspective. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think getting to the time where women or people of color, differently able people don't feel like <clears throat> they have to prove that they deserve the seat at the table. But but in your case, you're setting the table, right? It's your table. <laughs> you want the right. damn table. It's so. <laughs> and I remember um, you telling us, Kelly, sit at the table. Do not sit on the exit. Sit. You sit at that table. You go in. And you be in a power position in that table. And I've just always remembered you telling us that. And you've been such a great mentor to me. I know we're the same age, but I've looked to you for advice and counsel so many times along the road and can't thank you enough for everything you've done for all of us. So, well, it's always been a pleasure, but I think the reason that I, you know, the people seek me out is they realize that I, I've got quite a few battle scars. I've, in general, I've probably <laughs> been through almost everything that someone right. could go through. So I do have a perspective on it. And yeah, I can remember many times walking into a conference room where all the seats were taken and just standing there until someone got up. And yeah, because women should be at the table. It's, you know, we, we, we de it definitely sends a message when you don't, don't take one of the, the bleacher seats for sure. Right. And so anything like, you know, the other thing you and I talked a lot about when you were starting the firm is don't be apologetic about it being your firm. And that's important because a lot of times I think women come from situations in their careers where they want things to be more egalitarian and they say, gee, I'm not going to repeat, you know, the sins of my former firm. And sometimes they give away too much power. And, you know, my personal view is own your power. You know, it's it, it's your idea. It's your firm. It's your money. What What's that experience been like for you? And, and has that created any challenges? Well, I'm, I'm a big believer. I always say individuals lead, but teams achieve. And you just can't do it on your own. And when I went to Alan Patrickoff for advice, as like you, I've gone to Alan many times over the years as I was starting 1315 Capital, he just said, Adele, you have to have a partner. And this is something Alan has done over and over again. And ironically, every time he started a firm, he's had a partner that has been a woman. And he was the one who said, you really need to find that person you can talk to at 10 o'clock at night, 6 o'clock in the morning and bad things around. And I'm just so thankful that Michael Kobe joined me in this journey and has just been a terrific partner to me. You spend so much time, so much of my waking moments. And yesterday I was sharing a dream I had about work, which was interesting because we ended up talking about that portfolio company. So it consumes you and you want to make sure that you have, just like at, at home, a highly functional household, you want to have a highly functional firm. And just having a great partner at home and a great partner at work just allows all the noise to be out of the room so that you can just achieve and be productive, whether it's with your family. And my husband, Charles, as you know him very well, Kelly, Andrew, and Charles have made a lot of sacrifices for our careers. Charles has been just an incredible supporter, as has my mom and our sons of my career. Michael's been a great partner at 1315 Capital. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that that is, it's very well said. That's great advice. I can't say that I always benefited from having having such a great partner, but I learned a lot from that. I would say, your, you know, your point about having a great partner at home is a really key one. And I often find when I'm asked to come go and speak to younger women or women who are earlier in their career, you know, maybe the first 10 minutes will be about business. And then people start asking about your personal life and, gee, how do you find the right partner? And I don't know what to do. You know, these men seem so intimidated by me and, or they just want to compete or, and, you know, I've, I've often counsel people that you know, women can have it all. It just depends on what you want. <laughs> you know, it depends on how you define all. And so, you know, I think it, it can often be very tough if two people who are married are in the same industry and, and have those competitive dynamics. And the, so you just have to think about what skills and what attributes and what values do you need in a partner that complement you? And as you say, you know, we're you and I are very fortunate that Andrew and Charles are both, you know, smart and accomplished people, but have taken, you know, have very different paths and have been able to be more flexible and accommodate our careers as the also careers. And I think more women need to embrace that. You know, I, I always tell people, I think that this, it's not a dirty little secret, but the, one of the secrets of private equity is that if a woman's a partner, certainly a founder, it's very likely that she has the alpha career or that she is the primary breadwinner in her house. And that's that's a really important dynamic that a lot of people don't necessarily think of because I, I do think a lot of people think, oh, isn't that nice that she's dabbling in that little career because she can step off anytime she wants and, you know, be a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. I mean, I really admire folks that are able to have two powerful careers because it's hard. It's hard to juggle, particularly the travel. That was something very early on. Charles took roles where he wasn't traveling once we had the, the boys. So that, it, uh, but folks that do it, I, I give them huge kudos for being able to be successful professionally with two careers as well as personally. It's great to see. Yeah, agree. I had a whole, so I is, felt like I had a village supporting me. I had, <laughs> not only did I have Charles and, you know, certainly a childcare and my mother lived next door to us a lot of, a lot of the years, which was a big help as well. Yeah, for sure. It definitely takes a village. It, 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 that's actually an interesting point. A lot of women I know also have their parents nearby and or or a sibling or, you know, or, or everybody and everyone's kind of pitching in. So that that's actually a really good point. I actually think we, we I think we all need to talk about this more and share this more. I think women, you know, I think a lot it's very difficult often for us to be vulnerable because we're trying to be so strong and we don't want to show any chink, chinks in our armor. But I think being able to talk about what are the things that help support you in your path. And it could be lots of different things. You know, it doesn't, not necessarily family or a spouse, could be friendships, could be meditation, could be therapy. All of those things, I think, whatever's working for us, <laughs> we need to throw it into the pile and let other people know about it. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. Is there something you would point to as uh, a high point of your career or a highlight of your career thus far? Definitely starting 1315 Capital, the team we've assembled. It's just, it's so wonderful to come to work every day 
and enjoy every single person at the firm and have the challenge when we go out together and we do events together, who do I sit next to because I want to spend time with every single one of them. It's just uh, Michael, my partner always says he underestimated how hard it was, the ability to build and hire the team. We have a very unique structure in terms of how we bring people in and, and the interview process. So it helps us find the right folks that are going to fit in and really be driven, yet very, very collegial which is the culture Michael and I decided we wanted from the very beginning. But it's definitely 1315 Capital, and our passion around healthcare for life is our motto here, and that's what everyone shares. That's great. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's I'm hard-pressed to think of what would be a better high point than founding your dream firm, which is something, you know, you've wanted to do for so long, and, and, and you pulled it off to great success. And I know you put so much thought and dedication into it. So not surprising that, you know, it's it's been as, as successful as it has been. Now, I know that all of us have things that maybe haven't gone as well as we might like. I certainly have dozens of them that I can think of. Are there things that you would characterize as maybe like a teachable moment that where things didn't go quite the way you wanted? And how did you make it through lessons that you learned? How did you grow from those experiences? Yeah. So I, I share very openly at the firm, all of my mistakes that I've made as well, because I feel like this, I, as I've said, I want everyone to be better than I am, better than my goal. Like we want everyone to learn and just achieve an even higher level of success. And mine was early in my career. I was in commercial banking, and this may sound funny, but I made a mistake around a letter that went out and it had the wrong name on it. And there was a, a bit of a mix up with it. And I was horrified that I made this mistake. And my dad always used to say, you must check and double check. And so at the firm, everyone reads the book, Good to Great, which talks about doing something to the best level the first time and having that, um, expectation that things will be done in a great way. And there, it creates a lot more efficiency by doing that. But that I would say was one of those teachable moments. I still kick myself, every mistake I made pretty much, I still kick myself about, but I, I have learned from them and hopefully grown from them. Yeah. I, you know, like I said, I can think of so many, so many mistakes. What I've learned from the mistakes is one, they're never as bad as you think they are. So, you know, people like right. ourselves, you know, who, who are perfectionists and want it to be right. You, know, you just spiral around that mistake. But ultimately, when you look back, bad things didn't really happen. Everything was okay. All, every, right. all, the, all the horrors that your brain goes to generally don't happen. And I remember when I was at Prudential and we went from having a history of having always had CEOs who, you know, came from a much more kind of traditional insurance company executive background to hiring, hiring Art Ryan, who had been the head of, who had been the president of Chase. And he came in and he said, you know, that he worked from the 80-20 rule and that he wanted you to get things right 80% of the time, understood that you would make mistakes 20% of the time. But that was okay because that meant you were taking risks. 
And mm -hmm. my personal view is particularly, you know, we're, we're private equity, venture capital investors, we're paid to take risk. And so you're going to get it wrong sometimes. But it just depends on, you know, how, how did you measure the risk? You know, was it a fatal flaw? Were you being sloppy or lazy? Or, you know, it, did you miss something or didn't, did it not go the way? So I've, that's always stayed with me because before that I would say I was probably somebody who thought you had to get it right 100% of the time. And, of course, that's your goal. That's what you want. But, you know, we are compensated based on taking risk, and that means sometimes you're going to be wrong. Yeah, I completely agree. And we, we talk about that as well is every deal is not going to work, and we do a deep dive when things don't work as planned. But we also spend a lot of time, we're later stage investors, right? Half of what we do is buy out, half of what we do is growth. And we'll often see opportunities where things may not have gone as planned for earlier folks. And we were just talking yesterday in the partnership meeting about really, we're looking at a deal right now, really understand why those existing investors may not have seen what was happening. And how do we make sure that we have the controls in place and the understanding and the depth of knowledge. And so we spend a lot of time not only looking at our own mistakes, but the mistakes of others to try to benefit from it. But it's going to happen when you're targeting the returns we're targeting. There is risk involved. Exactly. And now we're going to take a break for a message about our sponsors. We would like to take a brief break to thank PEWIN's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at PEWIN.org. Now back to today's guest. Okay, and we're back. So the final question I want to ask you before we move to one of my favorite parts of, of Moments That Made Her is, is there anything else, either professionally or personally, that you would point to that actually changed you? You know, either changed your perspective, changed your outlook, changed your approach, changed your path? Is there something in particular that you would point to? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's it's definitely my dad passing away when I was 19 in college. And it just provided so much perspective on life. And I often will say, like, people have different things that happen to them. And folks are shocked that I remain calm under a lot of different conditions. And I'll say, if this is the worst thing that has happened to us today, we have had an incredible day. And just keeping that perspective in life keeps, I believe, just such a much more measured approach to taking into account things just happen and things don't always go as planned. You course correct and you just keep going. And my mother was one that always really drove home the importance of remaining calm in every situation, no matter what was going on. She said, you have to remain calm so that you can think through what the different alternatives are for problem solving. And so both of my parents have been very influential 
in kind of just my overall approach to life and just professionally and personally. That's great. Yeah, I pride myself on staying calm. I wouldn't say I always did. I would say the Italian in me used to come out a lot more <clears throat> in terms of just like reacting. But one of the things I realized is particularly when you're in an adversarial position, the more you stay calm and the calmer you get, particularly in light of someone else who maybe is being aggressive, the more more power. You, the power center tends to move your way because you just look more rational. And I and I learned that only because people use that with me, you know. And the er, in early parts of my career, I would say maybe I wasn't quite <laughs> quite as calm, but I certainly have learned that over time. And my mom is kind of the opposite of your mom in that when things go wrong, I mean, I still one time my dad was cleaning the gutters on our house, and of course, you know, he fell off the ladder as things do. And my mom's reaction was to run in circles and say, "Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god!" And so we quickly realized. Mom's not the one you want <laughs> in a crisis. <laughs> so usually it's me. I'm usually very good. My sister's also good in a crisis, but not mom. <laughs> she panics. So, Well, so now I want to move on to our lightning round. And I'm just going to throw some questions out at you, get your reaction, you know, first thing that pops into your head. And so my first question is, is there a great book that you've either read or listened to re recently that you'd like to share? Oh, wow. I have so many. I'm, I'm going to give you two, if that's okay. I, of course. Alan Patrickoff wrote a book, No Red Lights, and it is a fantastic read. It's about his life, but there are so many great learnings for life and investing in that book. So I just finished that and started reading Glucose Revolution, which it, I recommend it. Every single person should understand what's going on when they're fueling their body. And there's so much information now around glucose and its impact on wellness, sleep, weight gain, everything. It's just, it is such a driver of how people feel and the energy level you have. And it's been a proactive investment theme that we've been looking at. And so that's been a great page turner of a read for me. Yeah, really? That's interesting. Yeah. Now, I would actually, I would actually be interested in reading that, Andrew my husband's diabetic. And and now recently his doctor said, well, you're not really diabetic, you're hypoglycemic. And so mm -hmm. for years, you know, he's been having injections, which perhaps he didn't really need, but all of this could have been monitored better with diet, which I'm sure is a big theme of this book. But anyway, it sounds like it's something worth having both of us read. So thank you for sharing that. Is there a word that you hate? To I guess it's more of a mindset of not being able to figure something out. I always feel like, I remember being interviewed for the Kaufman program and they asked me, give me an example of a time you ran into a brick wall. That can never be. You always need to find the alternatives, <laughs> right? So I would say that's more of a, a, a spirit of life for me. Mm -hmm. Who do you text the most? Oh, my sons. Yes, definitely. They're <laughs> of both course. in college. So we we spend a lot of time texting to stay in touch. <laughs> what was your favorite subject in school? Oh, absolutely math. I love math. Love it. I wanted to be a math major in college, but my dad said, what are you going to do with a math major? You know, take business. And thankfully, there was finance and business that I could take. So, but love numbers. That's 1315 Capital. There you go. Well, yeah, I like you, I, I 
love math. Part of it is I always thought the homework was easier. It was easier than like having to write a paper or essay. Mm-hmm. You just did some problems, which is why I had a I had a double major, poli sci math, which people don't usually think what of as a great as, uh, double going major. Together. Yeah. It was. It was. I, I'm really happy that I did it. Do you have a favorite? I love popcorn and I will eat it whenever I possibly can and seek it out wherever I am. Ah, like good for you. My husband makes, yeah, in our house. My and my husband makes great popcorn. I I agree with you. That's like my go-to thing. Does I he have a whirly pop? At least. You have to have a. He does not. He's old-fashioned. Okay. He makes it in a you know a big, like a big, almost like a pasta, you know, mm-hmm. boiler and uh, with olive oil and salt, and it's just yeah. fantastic. Do you have a favorite type of music? Oh, I love music. I love all music, but boy, do I love R&B and 80s. Yeah, just 80s <laughs> rock and R&B, that combination is just mm-hmm. magic for me. I have a whole FEMSA finance playlist that I put together for when I started the firm fundraising, just so that I like just keep the energy up. I just Oh, you have to share feeds, that with us. Yeah, music feeds the soul. I'm so excited that my older son is a musician and just love it. Wow. Okay. You may have to share that with us. We may we may need a link to your playlist. That that okay. sounds pretty fabulous. And so if you weren't in the career that you have now, what else would you be doing? Yeah, I, it's so close. I'd probably be a medical device CEO. I just love healthcare. <laughs> I love business. When they interviewed me for Kaufman, they said, if you weren't doing, if you don't become an investor, what would you do? And I said, I'd probably be a medical device CEO. I just really love what I do. I find it so interesting and I just love reading about it. So I'm pretty narrow in in my interests. I'm not an art. I mean, I know you have great passion for art and so many other things. You're the Renaissance woman, Kelly. I am not. <laughs> Well, but that's a blessing. I mean, gosh, how many people in their lifetime, you know, have something that just resonates with them so much and brings them so much joy. So I I think you're very lucky. That's, I think that's a very fortunate thing. So the final question I want to ask you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Wow. Um, definitely, I would say, there's personal advice, professional advice. I would say professional advice, which also is personal, is hire people with energy. I love high energy individuals. And Michael will say, you, you can't whip a mule. You want to make sure that the team that you're surrounded with every day has the passion and energy that you have, and you're not pulling them along, that you're going along in tandem. And I ask people, I keep a whole list on my phone of advice and I am constantly asking people what advice they have. And I just keep a whole list and I look at it all the time. Alan's was lunch at your ah. desk as a wasted opportunity, Alan Patrickoff. So <laughs> just learn from others. It's great. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that you keep a list of, of advice. That's mm-hmm. that's actually With the really, person's a name, really good date, thing. everything. It's, yeah. it's nice oh, to Oh, I look like at. that. That's a great tip. Well, as I expected... This has been a great conversation. I am so happy to see you and hear hear about things, even things I didn't know about you. I've learned about you in this 
discussion. So Adele Oliva, the founder of 1315 Capital, it has been such a pleasure to have you as our guest today on Moments That Made Her. And Kelly, again, thank you for your leadership. Thank you for starting PE Win, which was such an important part of me starting 1315 Capital. You have impacted so many of our lives in such a material way. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PE Win Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PE Win expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Wynn and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.